Hi, I'm Mara Schiavocampo. I'm Keith Reed. And I'm Wesley Lowry. This week on Run Tell This, we're tackling the big news stories of the week as the Attorney General seemingly arbitrarily declares anarchist jurisdictions all across the country, voting rights hang in the balance of the Supreme Court, and Louisville braces for a grand jury decision about the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. Plus, our guest co-host this week, veteran journalist, media executive, and author Goldie Taylor. Hello to everyone listening. This is our premiere episode which means that if you're listening now, you can always say that you were with us from the very beginning and we are really, really happy to have you. So welcome to Run Tell This. This is where we have the conversations that we'd be having anyway. We're just letting you listen in on them. So Keith was um, actually sharing some really big news that I didn't know about. Yeah, I'm sharing, sharing really big news that like not a whole lot of people know about because you know, COVID and, and everything else. So this is like the worldwide introduction to this news. Um, so my 2020 has been crazy like everybody else's, but for a whole bunch of different reasons, because over this summer, A, I got engaged, and B, <laughs> Goldie, Goldie almost died. <laughs> Any, anybody that's, that's, that's had like a five-minute conversation with me in the last like 10 years is probably going to fall out and pass out when they hear that. But um, I got engaged, and I have a new baby, seven weeks old. Asher Austin Reed. Aww. He is adorable. He's gorgeous. Of course, he's gorgeous because he's my son. But I mean, yeah. Oh, congratulations! So, where is he now? Why is he not screaming his head off? What'd you do? Oh, he's he. They're they're all the way, all the way at the back, 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 and I'm all the way, all the way at the front, 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 front for that yeah. very reason. That Aww. is so so sweet. I love that. Well, we have some other good news, not nearly as good as that, but um, the Route 100 just came out and a lot mm-hmm. of our friends are on that. Did you guys see the list? I did see the list. I did. I did see the list. It was a nice list this year. I nice did. list. Yeah. Jermaine Lee. Jermaine Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yamish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kate was on there. Who? Um, Kate? Kate Bennett was on there. Oh, oh, oh yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why was... I was talking about our Cap, friends. Kate, but Cap, you went, Kate, Cap, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, went, you went big with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have, okay, I have a confession. Mm-hmm. I have never been on the list, and I am now mad about it. You're <laughs> <laughs> mad after the fact? I am now 52, which is too old for the Route 100 list. But for 12 years, I have been mad, and I have never been on the list. <laughs> they do have an age limit, it's 25 to 45. And I actually think that the age limits are bullshit because like, why? Yeah. Everybody yeah. has a different timeline. I'm gonna tell you something. I, I, so I do this exercise, right? Of every once in a while, it, some, some of it is sort of like self-abuse. And then some of it is, is an affirmation and it depends on which day it is. So like this morning, it, it, it started off the first way and it ended the second way. So I started reading, I, was, I went down a rabbit hole on Twitter. Somebody had posted, a story about like Sheldon Adelson and I'm reading this thing and I, and I started to like hate read it. Right. Because of who it is. But then I started like went all the way down the rabbit hole and started reading, you know, this man, like he didn't actually make any real money or do anything significant until he's like 45. And then he didn't make, have like real, real money and get into, you know, his actual business and casinos and stuff until he was in his fifties, like his mid so I was, so I read that, and I, again, I started to hate read it, and like his politics, I'm still not good with. But I was like, oh, I still got a little bit of time. 
Well, how about we speak into existence that next year we're all on the list? I like how about that. that. I like every, that. everybody here next year. Everybody here. I'm a, I don't know. Goldie tells oh. a grandmama. Grandmamas are not allowed on the list, as I understand. <laughs> okay, speaking of esteemed Black people, 24-year-old Zendaya Coleman just won an Emmy for her role in Euphoria, making history by becoming the youngest lead actress in a drama. I stand for Zendaya, like she is perfection. And the fact that she won and it was supposedly an upset <laughs> when like it wasn't that unexpected from a lot of people and nobody was upset about it. I know that's not the meaning of the word upset in that sense, but I just think it's a fantastic, beautiful moment. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I love everything about her. I love her performances. I love her sense of humility, but her big stardom sense as well. I love everything about this young woman. I didn't think it was an upset, but I think, was it the New York Post who called it an upset? New York Post called it an upset. upset and then, came from them, but then what do you expect? Well, then all these people started saying, well, we're not upset. And then all these other sanctimonious people started saying, but that's not what upset means. And then people responding and saying, well, we know what it means, but it wasn't an upset because it was expected and we're not upset. So there. <laughs> so oh, it's like the world, this whole, <laughs> the world, oh, the world of Twitter. Oh, the, world. The, whole, the whole world of Twitter. So I have to admit that I have not watched Euphoria. Um, and so I haven't I need, seen it either, actually. You know, and so, and so now this kind of lit a spark for me, like, all right, I, I got I to gotta check this out because I want to I make sure to support. And so I was excited for her because one, she was adorable, obviously rooting for her. It was so awesome to see her excited like that, you know, with, with her people. And I was also like, all right, I probably need to watch the TV show. Yeah. I haven't seen Euphoria either, but that's because I have such a long list of things that I'm trying to get through. And when you have two children and especially during the pandemic and you're doing remote schooling, like it literally will take us days to watch one episode of one show. What are you watching, Mark? What are... <sighs> Maybe this is so corny. We're watching a lot of renovation shows. However, home renovation right now is on fire. I think because people are looking for comfort. It's one of the only areas of retail that is selling and it's one of the biggest areas of content. So maybe I'm not, you know, so lame, but I do feel very cliche when I'm on the couch after the kids are in bed and I'm like, let's just watch a home renovation show. So, so to pivot that though, so last night, I binge watched, there's only one season available on Netflix, the show called Million Dollar Beach House. I saw it. You watched that trash? Oh, I watched everything. Did you hate watch it or did you oh, like I loved watch it? it? I loved everything. <laughs> where where it's, it's like five pretty early career real estate agents and they all go to the Hamptons to sell Hamptons houses, like $35 million houses for the summer. And they have all their little petty drama between them. They're getting in fights at the open house in front of people. And I, when I got to the end of the first season, I was very upset there was not another one. Oh my gosh. I was ready to go. I thought you were such an intellectual. That show made me dumber. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I've never, I've never been to the Hamptons. So I just gotta, I gotta watch it. What are you drinking, Wes? Yeah. This is, a, this is an iced tea. Nothing special. Just iced tea? Just iced tea. Oh. I got a, I got a flight in the morning, so I can't. What, what time is your flight? 8.15. Oh, that's early, because you got to be right. at the airport at like, right. what, 6.15? Yep. Okay, so Goldie's with me. What are you drinking, Goldie? Nana always has wine. So Nana always. <laughs> Nana has wine all the time. I've gotten to that point in my life where wine happens frequently. I love it. <laughs>
I love it. As Nana, as Nana should. Um, so a little bit of serious news and there's so much serious news right now. It's, 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 I've never been one of those people that put my head in the sand and didn't want to see the news. I have become one of those people mm. where I have to like get my mind right to read the news because it's going to be so upsetting. So um, this week, Trump Attorney General Bill Barr identified three cities as anarchist jurisdictions, saying that they are permitting violence and destruction of property. And by making that declaration, he's stripping them of federal funds. What I found really interesting, so I went on the DOJ's website and I pulled like the actual announcement. Do you know what one of the criteria is for labeling a city an anarchist jurisdiction? This is a direct quote. Any other related factors the attorney general deems appropriate? Holy smoke. Holy smoke. So it's basically anything that he decides is applicable. You mean the same attorney general who said that being forced to wear a mask was akin to slavery? That, that guy's judgment that, that, that guy. you want to listen to? That guy. <sighs> but they're finding a way, it would seem, to punish cities that are defunding police departments and cities that are led by uh, Democrats that they have petty beefs with. Um, and they have found this way to strip them of funding. Well, I actually think it's a little bit more insidious than that, right? So it's not just, it, it is, you're correct, finding a way to punish your political enemies and your, in, 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 with using funding, but it's also a way to, they're, they're actually finding policy mechanisms that they can use to attack the very premise that you, the, 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 like to, to attack your constitutional rights, right? So there's a, you know, there was a, there was a measure, I think it was Governor uh, DeSantis in Florida uh, that I just saw, it was either today or yesterday, put forth a, a piece of legislation that would, uh, that would have actually, that would actually punish uh, specific acts that happened during the course of a protest. So if there's property damage, it makes it, it makes uh, that a felony. If there's, uh, if there are injuries, it makes, if, if these things are injurious, you know, if something happens during the course of a, of a, of a protest, or as he put it, a, a riot, um, then there, that comes with mandatory minimums, right? And all of these, all these different penalties that would then follow a person for the remainder of their life uh, as part of, part of a criminal record. And the thing that was so, um, that, was, that, that was just so awful about it was reading the governor's words and the way he spoke about it was that, you know, we put this forward so that we can, um, so that we can curtail or, 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 or take away people's, uh, some like people, people's um, desire to, to riot. They wanted, they wanted to use this measure to prevent people from rioting. And the first thing that I thought was, you know, the thing that you could really do to prevent those situations from happening is maybe institute some mandatory minimums and use your policy led, uh, use your policy levers and use your bully pulpit to actually criminalize the thing that's happening that causes the protests that you want to now tamp down on, right? Like it's not, people aren't going out in the street, rioting, throwing stuff. And I'm not saying that it's okay to be violent in the, in the course of a protest, right? Cause I'm sure somebody on Twitter is gonna find this and, and hit me with that one. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is the things that are happening in, in the protest, whether they're peaceful or not peaceful 
are being caused by the things that people like Governor DeSantis and William Barr and Donald Trump don't want to address, right? So if we had some mandatory minimums for police officers who misbehave in the course of doing their in, in line of duty, if we had some mandatory minimums and some and some felony charges for cops who bust in somebody's house in the middle of the night and kill them. We had thing if we had some mandatory minimums for somebody for a cop who put a hood over a young boy's head and smothered him to death. We had those things, you wouldn't see protests that then lead to the kind of violence and the kind of property destruction that he wants to criminalize. So it's very um that that the, the right wing has decided that the hill they're gonna die on is scaring everybody and worrying everybody, worrying the country, worrying, worrying their base about protests and about riots and about lawlessness. They're not gonna address the actual lawlessness. They're not gonna address the actual, uh, the actual criminality that, that exists oftentimes outside of, you know, oftentimes within the actual official capacity of police departments, police unions, and et cetera. So they're just, they've, they've just completely done away with any and all pretense of wanting to address the root cause. And they've just simply gone after the protesters and gone after, not, and by extension, not just the protesters, but everyone's constitutional rights. And they believe that that's the way that they can hold power. That's always been the hill, though, Keith. That's always been the hill. So if you go back and look at Goldwater's 64 speech, you lap that over with, you know, what Trump said, say, in Pennsylvania one time. It's the same speech. It's the same hill. It's the same division of black and white using the blue line of police. It is the same hyper-policing of non-white neighborhoods because that is where they drum up the base. That is the strategy on which the Southern strategy was built. If you can hypercriminalize, hypermoralize, you know, one class or the other, you know, that's about vote getting and power stripping. But at the end of the day, it isn't about policing power. It isn't about necessarily voting power. It isn't necessarily about, um, you know, the, the various platforms that you see. It's about preserving whiteness, my friend. It's more insidious than all of this other stuff. It's about the preservation of white privilege. And when they see that moving, slipping away for them and for their children and for their grandchildren, they're going to fight like hell, even if it means ramming through a Supreme Court justice with 44 days left to go before an election. Yeah. Um, well, that takes us right to one of our in-depth topics, which is the, uh, the fight for the Supreme Court. So God, I want could one of you take this from me because it's so upsetting. It's, it's, it's not necessarily the politics of it that's upsetting, it's the hypocrisy that's upsetting. That you have that soundbite from Lindsey Graham saying, use this against me in the future. This is a rule that will be the status quo from here on out and I will adhere to it. And now saying, never mind. And even those that you would expect to have some principle, you know, Mitt Romney has been quite principled recently and today steps out and says nope he's he's getting in line with this as well so so somebody help me out with this what what well let's talk about black people because that's what this is all about right what is the what could the court's future mean for us and for voting rights and for all of the things that affect our lives day to day well you know 
Mara, there's a, there's a ton of different ways. I mean, the court is really important. And to some extent, I actually think the average Republican voter has grasped this in recent cycles in a way that perhaps the average Democratic voter has not. Not, that, not saying that there's no one who's you know, thinking about this, but this is one of the main things that Republicans have used for several cycles. Uh, and I think that it's only recently that it's really grasped on in terms of Democratic voters, which means a lot of Black voters as well. You know, the Supreme Court is extremely powerful. And on almost any issue that people care about, uh, the court is going to be making decisions that set precedent, that uh, changes how, how laws are, uh, are interpreted. You know? And so among the things that the, this court and in the coming months are going to deal with are a legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act, where the, you know, the court you know, now currently with eight members, but then potentially with a ninth member appointed by Donald Trump, has to make a decision about the constitutionality of Obamacare, right? And could make a ruling just days after the election that strips healthcare coverage of people in the midst of a global pandemic. And we know who's gonna be disproportionately affected by that, right? As we know, there are, you know, there's a big push to uh, restore the Voting Rights Act and uh, bills through the House. If Democrats were to win the Senate, they'd very likely pass that as well. well the reason the Voting Rights Act was stripped in the first place was because of the Supreme Court ruling. And so in a world in which a new Voting Rights Act was challenged, it would be up to the Supreme Court to figure out if this is constitutional or not, right? And so the idea that Donald Trump would have an additional uh, person to the Supreme Court impacts the laws of our country for decades, potentially, right? It's something much longer than his time as president, be it four years or eight years. And I think that's why he and Mitch McConnell in the Senate have focused so heavily on the judiciary because they know that it lasts indefinitely on all types of issues, uh, marriage, on abortion, on, uh, and beyond abortion, on federal funding for Planned Parenthoods, right? For all types of reasons, sex ed and access to um, contraception, right? Questions over uh, churches and nonprofit status, questions over fair housing, right? There are so many issues that ultimately come down to court decisions. And Donald Trump has gotten to name hundreds of judges across the country and now might be able to tilt the Supreme Court um, in a way that unless the Democrats were to come in and do something could last for decades. But what can they do? Because you know Nancy Pelosi does this like ambiguous, like there's plenty of quivers in our bow or whatever it was that she said. And I'm like, well, what? Well, can you give us some specifics? <laughs> well, there's, one, there's one that she can pull before election day that would take precedent over all other Senate business. They can impeach him again. And they can keep this vote on the Supreme Court justice from happening until they conclude that business, which could move into the lame duck, at which point, you know, Mark Kelly's gonna beat McSally out in Arizona, you know, in a special election, he gets sworn in immediately. Uh, Kelly Loeffler is in a special election with uh, Warnock and others here in Georgia. If uh, she loses, you know, her successor, maybe Raphael Warnock, he gets sworn in immediately. And so that cuts the number. They only need four and they have two, right? Um, they have two Republicans who have said they won't move forward with this. If they pull two more, uh, then it's game over. So they could use that explosive nuclear quiver to just shut the whole thing down. You can't, you know, filibuster a Supreme Court nominee anymore. Uh, so you can't use that quiver. But so that's, that's the nuclear piece. 
But if you want to go further than that, and, I, and I've said this out loud, that you could let them have this justice, right? You can let them have this justice. You can say, okay, swear them in. You know, you got a five-four court just like you always wanted. Yeah, you get to strike down ACA. That's going to be really, really painful. How sh- but, but as you realize, ACA is a pretty messy act, right? It's a re- pretty messy law. When they, they had to cobble this thing together just to get it through. What if on January 22nd, you know, after inauguration, that you did bring two more states into the union, D.C. and Puerto Rico, good cases for them both to be brought in right now, should have been brought in decades ago, right? So what if you do bring them in? Second thing is, and so that's, that's four more senators, four more Democratic senators, uh, presumably. The second thing is, you can decide the court pack. Nine's not a magic number. It's not held in the Constitution anywhere, not written down anywhere. Nine is not a magic number. There used to be five, there used to be seven, now they're nine. There could be just as easily be 11 or 13 tomorrow if a Democratic president and Democratic Senate and House decide that there are now 11. So you could very well do that. What do you get if you do one or both of those things? You get a brand new clean ACA. You get universal health care in the country. You get uh, restored reproductive rights in the country nationwide. You get gun sense, you know, reasonable gun uh, control laws in this country. You know, you get background checks, you know, federalized background checks on an instant basis in every state almost immediately. You know, you get some real reforms that say 17 and a half year olds are automatically registered to vote. You get that. You get mail-in ballots around the country and, and, and you get the Voting Rights Act all over again with pre-certification so you can't purge voter rolls anymore and kick people off the rolls who, you know, I've been voting all along and suddenly my name doesn't pop up on the Georgia roll because they illegally purged it. Matter of fact, they did it in a way that 70% of the purge was wrong. You know, they didn't even use a, a, a postal service certified, you know, purging tool to do it with. And so you get all of that stuff back and that's, you're not even out of first 100 days yet. If Democrats are willing to fight. Now, are they? Diane Feinstein says she doesn't believe in court packing. She doesn't believe that we ought to be killing the filibuster or anything else. So Schumer says nothing's off the table if they put this Supreme Court pick through. If Democrats are willing to fight, Nancy Pelosi is right. There are a lot of quivers in this pocket. Well, we will We will see. There's uh, the next few weeks are really, oof, part of me wants to be out of the country on the third. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to like whatever whatever Caribbean island will take Americans right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm about to say, where are you going? Yeah, they, 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 they cut us all out. I know everybody's locked us out. Um, real quick, we, you know, we have a couple minutes left, but I definitely want to talk about this because it's important, and I think it, it could end up being the big story of the week. Um, federal buildings in Louisville, Kentucky, are closed this week, in anticipation of a potential announcement regarding charges for the officers who killed Breonna Taylor. So I think it's pretty clear from the optics that they are preparing for there not to be any charges because they've literally boarded up the windows of federal courthouses, and you don't do that unless you're expecting people to go ape shit. Expect people to be mad. Unless you expect, you don't do that when you're expecting big, them to You expect people to be big mad. Big mad. Big. I also think that the timing of the announcement of the settlement with the family was very strategic because they wanted to try and soften the blow and say, mm-hmm. look, this is all speculative. We don't know yet, but look how much money they're getting. Look at what a fair, ama- it's one of the biggest police settlements ever. So that next week being this week when they announce that there are no charges um hopefully they're thinking people won't be as upset so does does anybody think there are going to be any charges out of this uh grand jury that people believe is now considering this 
case. No, I don't. I, I don't think in light of what we've seen, I'd be I'd be stunned. You could you could knock me over with a with a feather, and like if you've seen me, I'm like I'm not a small dude. You could knock me over with a with a feather. Um, if they if they bring charges in this case, um, it's the settlement's not gonna not gonna matter. It's not gonna matter. Um, people want justice. People want charges. People not only want charges. People want a conviction. We we've seen everything that we've seen in this in this country in terms of the social turmoil this year because people are fed up, people are tired, people are exhausted. It, and, and it was like, you know, we gave y'all a chance. This goes all the way back to 2012 with Trayvon Martin, right? The, 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 like it goes, all, it goes all the way back to 2014 with Mike Brown. This stuff has been going on. We're nearing a decade now. And, 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 and just a decade in terms of this particular iteration of the movement, right? against structural racism that started with the movement against police brutality and police murder and violence, right? Just this particular iteration has now been roiling for almost a decade. And it's still not a given in this country. It's not codified any, anywhere that if an officer shoots somebody, that that person is going to be charged. And when I say that that's not codified anywhere, what I mean is that of course, you can't automatically charge someone, right? But what we expect, what we what we want, is the same thing that we, that that if you and I or, or I or anyone in this call were were shot or were beaten, that the same thing would happen to the officer that did it. That would happen to me if I walked up to Wes on the street and shot him, right? Until that happens, until that until that comes and like we said earlier that the hill that, that the hill that the right wing wants to die on in this country is that we're just not going to do it we're going to pretend that it's not a problem um until that happens the anger the frustration is not going to go away um and so i don't think that that settlement that 12 million dollars you can't pay somebody for the loss of a loved one you can't pay off a community that's hundreds of years in, in blood and, 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 and injury and disenfranchisement for $12 million. Like that's, that, that's like burning my house down and telling me you'll pay my light bill next month. Like that's the, it, it, it ain't going away that, that easy. So I think at, at this point, the calculation that's been made is that, is that Louisville is willing to just, is, is willing to, and this is what was so deep about it, by boarding up, the, 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 the courthouses and by taking a, a defensive posture in anticipation of what's going to happen, they've made a decision that they're simply willing to absorb X amount of dollars in the millions in losses before they're willing to actually address the issue. And I've always, but I, I have to, with this one, I have to play it's not even devil's advocate. I have always said that this is a very legally complicated case because you have police officers who are serving a warrant. The information on the warrant is inaccurate. They did not conduct the investigation. They were handed this warrant when they walked into work. 
they go into that home executing that warrant and they're fired upon and they return fire. So I've always said that from a legal perspective, this is a really complicated case. And I think at best you get some form of reckless endangerment or a negligent homicide, which I don't think anybody would be satisfied with. So we're talking about the legal issues here and I can't see how a grand jury issues an indictment on, on anything in this case. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there, you know, so there are three officers in this case involved. There are three officers who are shown up and given a warrant. And, and I agree with Mara, you know, I think to start off, right, just based on the ways the laws are laid out in this country, you should never expect the police officers to be charged, right? Almost regardless of what the circumstances are and regardless of what the evidence is, right? Police officers in America have a very wide latitude legally in terms of when they're allowed to shoot and kill you. Um, if they get scared or can argue conceivably that they got scared, they're basically in the clear. In this case, I think that um, there was one officer who I thought might face charges. So you have two officers who are going in the front door and the third officer basically, I'm understanding, runs around the apartment and shoots through either the window or perhaps even through the wall um, and was firing bullets um, without being able to see a target, did not know exactly what he was shooting at. I think there was a world in which that officer could face charges. It still might be a complicated um, case, right? I, we are not privy exactly to what he, his version of the story is. Not, not that I think there's necessarily something that would be, that would explain that, but there might be something in, in how he's calibrated his statements that gets him into a legal gray area. Well, the reason I was shooting through X, Y, and Z is because of, and again, it's all about the technicalities of the law. And so while I think there has been some hope with folks that at least one of these officers might face something, I still think that's unlikely. And, un and unquestionably, it's not gonna be anything that makes people happy, right? This was a case where it's a terrible shooting and the woman who was killed had done nothing wrong whatsoever, is asleep in her own bed watching movies with her boyfriend. Right, and, and so the, there's a justifiable and reasonable anger among people who are saying this black woman was sitting in her house, this could be any one of us. And no charges for the officers or even were, you know, kind of smaller charges is not gonna be something that soothes that anger and that frustration about the fact that Breonna Taylor's dead. Let me tell you what's ugly about this case. What's ugly about it is I've called this a cash grab. I'll tell you why. So two warrants were executed that night. One down on Eugene Street downtown where Brianna's ex-boyfriend was and it was a true drug trap, right? I mean, cars coming and going all day, night. There were no less than 50 officers on the scene at Eugene Street, right? And they picked up Brianna's ex-boyfriend on Eugene Street that night. They knew he wasn't at Brianna's house. So, because they had him in custody. They thought Brianna was alone. So why did they go to Brianna's house? Well, there's a tape of the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend in jail, trying to get himself bonded out, saying, if you loan me this money, if you loan me this money, I'll pay you when I get out. Brianna's got my money. Told one call, she got about $8,000. Told another call, she got $14,000. What happens when cops grab cash? Rico, they get to keep the cash in the department. Mm -hmm. They knew Brianna. They thought Brianna was by herself. They thought Brianna was by herself. They didn't know that she had a new boyfriend and that he was there that night. They didn't expect to be fired on. They did a no-knock warrant on a single black woman 
in an apartment who they thought was unarmed because they thought there was $14,000 in cash in her house. It was a cash grab. The cop that went around the back, he's been fired. He might, might, might face some charges, but we're talking about Kentucky. You know, if you don't think, you know, that grand jury in New York couldn't indict the police officers when they saw Eric Garner on TV, on tape, getting choked out on a sidewalk. If you think that they could, you know, not indict those officers, they certainly aren't going to indict these officers in Kentucky where all the body cams were mysteriously turned off and not, and, and not turned over. So I don't know that anybody gets indicted in this case. I don't know if there's any justice other than the civil settlement that we've seen, you know, really in the case. But, you know, we're still talking about a police department that in the days and weeks after this murder has gone down, after this woman has been shot in her home and bullets have been flying through curtains and walls and into the next apartment. And so they were shooting wildly. We're still talking about a department that tried to pressure that ex-boyfriend into signing a statement to give him less time if he would implicate Brianna in the drug ring. In other words, tell us she's guilty. So as Andrew Sir, Adam Sir always says, there's a Tamir Rice rule. There's a Rice rule that he attributes to the 12-year-old that was shot in Cleveland Park. There are no circumstances under which you can murder or maim a black body and that body cannot be held culpable for its own murder and maiming. There are no circumstances that you can't explain away if the body is black. And so for Breonna Taylor, this was a murder. But in the eyes of the Louisville Police Department, in the eyes of the people who are likely sitting on a grand jury hearing this case, there are no circumstances that can't not explain this away. Mm-hmm. No, I don't You're not wrong, Goldie, but I, but, I, but I do want to say this. I don't want to, I don't want to put it entirely on whoever the, the, the nameless, faceless, you know, citizens are in, in, sitting in a grand jury room in, in Louisville. I'm not exactly sure how, how uh, grand juries work in that particular jurisdiction. Um, what I do know is that when you, that, that almost anywhere, a prosecutor has very, very wide latitude in what they present to a grand jury. Yeah, absolutely. So the, they the, do. The, the indictment that's coming or not coming is more a function or as much a function of who the prosecutor is and whether or not they're inclined to do their job as it is who's, who's sitting like that, that old dictum, the, the, the saying that we hear all the time about, you know, you can, you, you can indict a ham sandwich if you want. And if you talk to attorneys, they'll, they'll tell you that it, that's mostly true. It's not, it's not as simple as that, but it's, but it's mostly true. Mostly true. The reason is that it's mostly true is that if you go and going into a grand jury, a prosecutor has the latitude of presenting evidence without ever, in most instances, without ever having to be challenged on that evidence. So if you present enough evidence, if you, and, if you, and if you have a conversation with the prosecutor, they'll tell you, if they know they got a bad case, or if it's just a case they don't want to try, they won't try too hard. They'll, they'll do the bare minimum. They won't, just won't try too hard to put a whole lot of good evidence in front of a grand, in front of a grand jury. Also, correct me if I'm wrong. They can file charges anytime they want to. They don't need the grand jury. They just yeah, need yeah, the grand cover. jury decision that they're making to begin with. They could just file charges. Yeah. Right. Yes, they could. Right. So, I mean, that's an issue in and of itself. If they wanted to file some sort of charges, they could have done it, you know, months ago. So then what's it? So Wes, I'm going to pose this question to you because you've, you've out of this group, you spent the most time in the streets. What happens if and when 
there's an announcement made that says no charges against any of the officers. Do we go back to the spring? Does the country erupt? You know, that's a really good question. And, and I think that it could cut in, in two different ways. You know, I, I, look, I think there will be significant demonstrations, unquestionably Louisville, uh, but probably uh, mirror demonstrations in different places around the country. I will say that the, the raw passion of the moment, in my experience, tends to come a little more heavy when people are struck in the face with these videos than by the time you get around to a lack of charging. That's not to say that there have not been cases where that the decision is the thing that sparks violence or mass protests, right? But very often, it's, it's a different tenor, tenor. You know, there's something about that moment when you look at your phone and you see George Floyd getting choked out and you're like, I'm getting in the streets right now. I'm not even putting shoes on, I'm going outside, right? Versus a world where people are kind of wound up for it. They've sat and watched on their phones or on television. They're waiting for this explanation. They've had a lot of time to basically become cynical. Well, they're not going to charge these cops anyway. And isn't this terrible? You know, there's, there's something about that that I think is going to be interesting. Again, I think part of the Breonna Taylor paradox is, you know, she was killed months before her case became national news. And in fact, her case gained additional prominence in the midst of the George Floyd protest. Some of that is because there was not video. Some of that was because of some of the confusion. They, we remember they initially charged her boyfriend with, mm -hmm. with shooting at the officer. And so there was more kind of factual ambiguity at the beginning of what, what exactly had happened here. We hadn't heard his full version that no, we were just in the house and then now we have. And also this sense of, you know, we very often don't see black women who are killed by police receiving the same amount of attention and around the cases as we do some of these cases with black men. And so I think all those things are gonna factor together. I, you know, I would never, you know, I try to be really careful kind of prognosticating in this space because you never know exactly what's gonna happen, especially when you're talking about people's responses and their reactions. Uh, but I do think that what we saw in the spring around Memorial Day was a very special and a very unique moment in time um, that I think is gonna be very hard to get back up to. I and mean, what I always note is that when you think about George Floyd, you can't even think about that case in isolation, right? The entire country had been in quarantine for the first time for two and a half months coming into that. People were upset and stressed and didn't know what was going on. And then there had been two other highly inflammatory instances immediately beforehand. There had been the woman in Central Park uh, and Christian Cooper on video, and then the, the Ahmaud Aubrey case in Georgia. And so George Floyd was actually the third in a short secession that, um, that, that really got people. And then that video was remarkably inflammatory, right? You know, this, this wasn't some gray area where you could squint. People sat there for minutes watching a man say, I can't breathe and be choked. And so, you know, I, I think that it, it's unlikely um, that we get to that level, but I would expect some significant protests, significant demonstrations. Um, and what will be interesting for us in the field we're all in is what type of conversation that happens in the media around this, or is it a headline for a day and then, oh, and by the way, the presidential debate. And I think that's gonna be interesting. And so I think, Wes, on, on that note, the X factor there in terms of what happens in the conversation is, is is the guy who's going to be a part of the presidential debates. He views all of this, talking, speaking about the president, 
views all all of this as an asset to him right so he so whatever happens whatever whatever protests result uh, i think the president is likely with the debates coming up to to want to inflame tensions more than they already are um may actually take take some of the actions that he that we saw him take earlier in terms of sending in you know nameless faceless federal <laughs> you know what whoever these people are we still don't know exactly who they are uh it, it, like happened in uh in portland so i'm i'm apt to believe and and, and like you i'm i'm kind of loathe to pro prognosticate but i'm also apt to believe that this is probably going to be not one of those situations where where the where it's a it's a quick headline and it and it peters out just because of the political cycle we're in um and and the president i think is likely to try to seize on whatever anger there is to try to paint protesters uh to try to paint brianna taylor to try to paint victims of police uh violence as bad actors because he sees that helping him with his base and it'll be a, you know, it's worth noting, it'll be a topic in the debate next week. Will be. Right. And so I think that, and, and so that I think might also give it kind of a second life in terms of conversations. You know, I, I would be shocked if Joe Biden didn't address the Breonna Taylor case directly in the debate. Um, and then I think obviously, as, as you said, I think the, the president sees this as an advantage. So he's going to want to jump into this too. You know, I think it's being teed up for them because, you know, Chris Wallace came out with his topics today. And one of the topics is race and violence, you know, in urban America. <laughs> you basically, let's talk about black people and all this rioting uh, is one of the topics, you know, sort of for the debate. We may not be able to predict the run up smoothly to whether or not we're going to have civil unrest, right? Um, we did in Ferguson, you know, Ferguson's home for me. So I knew when it was coming and was able to make a call and say, hey, this is on the way. Nightfall's coming. We're going to have some problems because I recognize the faces in the crowd, right? Wait, but, question for you, Goldie. When you made that call, who did you call and did they listen? No, they didn't. They didn't. So it was an email. So there's an email trail. Um, the first email, I was cleaning my house here in Atlanta, right? When you know, my social media feed starts lighting up with friends from back home in Atlanta. Hey, Goldie, do you see this? Mike Brown was still on the ground when this is happening. And I email him in a broad swath. And I say, hey, nightfall's coming. I recognize some of these faces. It's going to get ugly really fast. This kid is still on the ground, right? They didn't listen. They ran an anchor package on Sunday. And they were the only crew to run anything about it on Sunday. They had a local affiliate in town. And what I was told was our local affiliate's going to take care of this. They had no idea how big this was going to get. Um, we did. So the NAACP from St. Louis calls me and says, hey, Goldie, we can't get anybody to pick up the phone. Will you come, to, come home, right? So they flew me home to St. Louis. MSNBC did not fly me into St. Louis. Um, I flew in Monday morning. So I'm the first on the ground there Monday morning. You know, by the time I get to the church, I see Wes, I see Tremaine, you know, Reverend Sharpton is now in town. The cavalry came in after they started burning the place down, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and before you know it, by Thursday, you know, I think Tuesday, I put uh, Dorian on air 
um, with Chris Hayes as the first exclusive. I was led to him, you know, he was staying in some days in downtown being tucked away by the NAACP. So I bring him on air that night and West did an incredible retrospective with him, you know, uh, just in the last year that I read. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, it was amazing. But they didn't believe us. And so I was an early voice, but I wasn't the only voice counting on Sunday and leading into Monday, right? They didn't hear any of us, any of, none of the networks did until things started to burn. And mm-hmm. so that was a problem. But if you look back at every issue of civil unrest, you may not be able to predict them coming forward, but you can look back and find the very same footprint every single time. There is a flashpoint every single time. A time when things, as we say, a time when things just pop off, that one incident, right? And so coming around this announcement of no indictment, yes indictments around Breonna Taylor's murder, we may not have civil unrest. We may have some silent protests, people in the night with candles. It takes one flashpoint. Goldie, thank you so much for being here. Will you come back and play with us another time? Oh, Lord, yes. This, this is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you're working on. I know you have a lot of really, really exciting projects in the works. I am working on any number of things right now. I've got a memoir to complete for HarperCollins. And, you know, Wesley knew all about this one uh, when it was coming down the pipe. Good. Um, it's the manuscript is due, you know, the first Monday of January. So, you know, I'm, I'm fast at work on, on that stuff. And uh, I've got a brand new television show coming next fall. So... The last novel I wrote, Paper Gods, had, it was optioned by Sony and Get Lifted, John Legend's uh, production company. It sold to ABC. And so uh, Paper Gods, a political thriller, uh, will come on next fall in the lineup for ABC. That's fantastic. Awesome. I love it. And where can people find you on social media? Girl, I'm always on social media. If I'm not on social media, y'all should think that somebody kidnapped me and ran away. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I'm at Goldie Taylor everywhere. At Goldie Taylor on Twitter, Goldie Taylor on Instagram, at Goldie Taylor on Facebook. I am Goldie Taylor everywhere. You got us. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm on everything but WhatsApp, I think. Uh, so. Well, for everyone who tuned in today, thank you so much. Please check us out on social media. We are run tell this underscore, run tell this underscore on Instagram and Twitter. Subscribe if you liked it, review. If you didn't like it, don't review. We want five stars only. <laughs> and, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. New episodes every Wednesday morning. And we would love your feedback. Hit us up on social media at runtellthis underscore. Runtell This is a production of Mara Scampo, Inc.